History, Rabbi Blyweiss, lecture number 58. The temple was destroyed yesterday. After the Korban, the world is a totally different place. We've seen this a few points in history, that there are events, calamities, all of which are a result of human sin, because the world moves on human sin, that have a physical direct impact on the world itself. You remember that we discussed the Mabul, the flood, and the new seasons, and the the new the fact that we're now carnivorous instead of um, just you know a vegetarian diet, and herbalists, and um, Bais Rishon also took the world down several notches, and this now is the same case with Bais Shani. When the temple was rebuilt, the world as it were, was elevated, and now with the second destruction, the Mishnah and Sota tells us we've lost the Shamir, Bato the Shamir, that cute little guy that we uh, that Shlomo used, employed to uh, carve the stones, that perfect edge. Wait, was this, these changes were immediately noticeable? Apparently so. So the Romans were like, oh yeah, what are we done right after? One gets that impression. There's certain. We, I quoted a couple sources yesterday. I'm not quite sure they used your formulation just now, but that they that there was a, an evident shift in the world order. You know, when we used, to, I, I mentioned yesterday that the Jews offered their nisuch hamayim, the water libations, and that that redounded well for the world. That there was rain in the world as a result. So now, without the water libations, suddenly. The rains are not as plentiful. That's got to be noticed in the world. Whether they connected it is another question. It may be that they were oblivious, but the world is a new place. The uh, we already talked about that Mishacharu base Mikdash bottle shear me base hamishtaus. No more music. Music as it once was without the levim uh, doing doing their avoda in the base of Mikdash. Uh, whatever we have today is a pale shadow. There used to be something called Nofes Sufim, which was a couple different definitions. One of them was a fine flower. Another one, a certain kind of exquisite honey. Whatever it was, a certain delicacy no longer exists. The Mishnah says, Pasku Anshe Amana. There were certain quality of people who had, Rashi explains, they had bitachon to spend freely on mitzvahs, knowing that it would all be uh, there, there would be recompense. The, Hashem, Hashem would, uh, would would make up for it, and then some. Today, people don't have that same bitachon and are a little more hesitant in spending money on the mitzvahs. It gets worse. The since the temple was destroyed, the Mishnah says, "Ein yom she'ein boklala." No day passes without some form of curse. Something terrible happens every single day. I perceive that in the world, though. Bad things going on. Um, Since the temple is destroyed, the um, rain falls or doesn't fall. Even when it doesn't fall, dew, tal, falls. Tainis tells us, though, there are different grades of dew. There's a kind of dew that's neutral and not particularly helpful. And then there's tal shelbracha. The tal shelbracha, the good quality kind of do is no longer no longer in the world. So, so we don't. I can't describe it because we don't have an analogy to it. Um, the temple's destroyed. Nital tam haperos. Fruit used to taste like something, and then you'll count to you and say, "Hey, I like my pineapples." And those grapefruits sure are bitter but sweet, and all the rest of the things that you you might like. Well, if we have something that we enjoy today, apparently it's just a, a, a percentage, a fraction of what it used to taste like. It was a magnificent flavor that no longer exists in the world. Uh, it says, Natal Shuman Haperos, the fattiness from the fruits was taken from, taken away. The Converses explains that means um, much of their nutritional content has been depleted, which is a scary thought when you consider that in the modern nutrition, as it, it, so to speak, as it comes to us, even so-called healthy foods, let's say you buy, I don't know, you know, frozen vegetables, 
you realize they freeze them within an inch of their life. They any nutritional content they may have once had is been so deeply depleted by the cut, the processing, the freezing, and sometimes you know the corn flake, the so-called you know nutritionally enriched corn flake. You know why they have to enrich it because they they've singed it within an inch of its life. And, and um, you can't even say blessing. Oh, you can't say you have to say shabbat most of the time. Correct. It's unrecognizable. It's corn anymore. And any nutrition it once had naturally has to be now replenished with, with uh, vitamins and all kinds of other chemicals uh, if that even helps. Anyway, everything used to be inherently nutritional and no longer is that the case. The Mishnah tells us learning, Torah, decreased exponentially with the destruction. The taste of wine is bottled, is nullified. And again, we think, well, but I thought wine kind of tastes like something, and especially with the onophiles in the world today with all their fancy French wines, don't they taste like something? Okay, it's all relative. Apparently there was really a taste that we don't have anymore. It also ferments much more rapidly. Apparently you can hold wine around for long periods of time as long as the base of Mikdash stands, and it would not ferment. There used to be the Gemara and Shabbos tells us specially fragrant cinnamon trees all over Eretz Israel. They give a natural scent and it smelled fantastic. Everywhere you went and um, gone, disappeared. Gemara Sanhedrin tells, Sanhedrin tells us uh, now they have new worries and that affects marital life. Men used to have an inborn desire for their wives that lasted through their marriage. And um, now they lose, now what does it mean? They lose it altogether? Probably not altogether, but whatever that cheshek, whatever that desire was, it's not the same, and, and it's been replaced now with desire for transgressions since the temple was destroyed. And if you're taking tally, of, you take a whole cosmic picture of all of these, uh, as they accumulate together, the lasting effect is an inferior world, a confused world. Our wires are crossed, are crossed. The food is inedible. Our desires are not in line with what they're supposed to be. The world is diseased without the base of Mikdash. Um, the Gemara Brachos goes further. An iron wall now separates Am Yisrael from Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in Heaven. In fact, it bases this on, remember the dream of Daniel? How is Rome depicted in the dream? Do you remember what, what, what uh, material was used, was, was used to depict Rome, particularly the Roman exile with, in the dream? I already told you just now, two minutes ago, if you, if you paid attention. Stone. Iron, right? So since there was iron, it was depicted with iron legs, so now an iron wall, which is a hermetic wall of sorts, something, something that uh, separates us from the Kaddish Baruch Hu, which kind of makes sense uh, when we consider it that um, we don't have the same access to a Kaddish Baruch Hu that we once did. The um, gates of prayer are closed. The gates of tears, however, can penetrate. So apparently it's not totally hermetic. In fact, here's a very, very central important concept that officially begins, it's not the first time we've encountered it in history, but it's so significant because it now shapes a whole new experience in terms of our relationship with Kaddish Baruch Hu, and it defines the world in the last 2,000 years, ever since the Horban, and it persists till today, and that is a state of Hester Ponim. Hester Ponim, which means God's hidden face. Have we discussed it here? Has it come up at all? It is a quality, you can go back to the beginning of the Torah, Cain, confront, contemplating his own actions, his sin, says that Gadol Avonim means so, my transgression is too great for me to, um, to carry, and his face falls. Lama naflu panecha, Hashem asks him, why did your face fall? And what that means is that his face turned away from Hashem, and Hashem turned away from Cain. And the worst fate that... Uh, being in Hashem's world, and certainly humanity, who were created in the spark of with the spark of Hashem, the Tzelam So the worst fate we can befall is alienation from our Creator. We are created; we're primed to have a relationship. We want to be close to Hashem, and when there's that alienation between us, uh, we're bereft. We're, uh, if you want to use some metaphors, we're a ship adrift. 
And that's the new state of affairs. Um, part of the quality of Hester Pudding, where previously in the world, bad things happened, but they made sense. You could understand a person sinned, and there was retribution. In a world of Hester Pudding, we experience life through a gaze. There's like a thick, several layers of gauze. We can vaguely make out the reality, but most of the truth, most of Hashem's involvement in the world is obscure, is obscured to us, and so the world comes out and appears to us sort of topsy-turvy. It's one of the things that make people question their faith, and uh, they can't explain events, how did, how did the Holocaust happen, these kinds of deeper questions that, that uh, affect people. Part of the problem is it's the state of the world. The world doesn't make sense, and we started it, and we perpetuate it, insofar as we haven't fixed the problems of the uh, that, that led to the Hormon, so that state of Hesterponim is, um, is with us. Anybody depressed yet? I mean, it's depressing, but it's not. Because if you think about it, we're descri I'm just describing to you the reality. To me, this makes so much sense and explains so much of the world as it is. I mean, think about how deeply alienating the world is, what kind of an experience most people, humanity, not just the Jewish people, but certainly the Jewish people have um, in the world today, well, it follows logically that when the Shekhinah is not present, when we're lost, when we're confused, when you have people wandering the city streets not knowing what they're doing in this world, lost or even worse, so addicted, so, so uh, distracted with their various petty obsessions and occupations in the world, all of that is a byproduct of this Hester Pudding, of this, of this collective confusion that we're part of. But we understand that traces itself back to the Chorba Mesa Mikdash, to our turning away from the Shechina, and the Shechina then in kind turning away from us. And what's I think, I think empowering is if we can recognize it and say, oh yeah, right, that's what's happening, the solution's also in our hands. If we make tshuva, if we work on ourselves, if we learn Torah, if we fix our midos, if we're midaktik in mitzvos, so that we actually can fix the situation. This is not the normal state of affairs. What we've come to accept is the reality doesn't have to be. See, David, you bought a base of Mikdash. Please, Hashem, build a base of Mikdash. You're effectively davening for all the tsuris, all the terrible, the, the collective terrible state of affairs as they exist in the world to be reversed. And it's all very much up to us. The Christian, the Christian sect, still a small persecuted sect, would begin around the time of the Chorban to use the destruction of the temple as a proof that you Jews, you reject the Lord's Savior, and so now look what happens, he rejects you. He even destroys your holy house. That, if nothing else, is the clearest sign that you are on the outs. Hashem doesn't like you. You remember this idea? It's come up again. When Herzl, in the early 1900s, won an audience with, was it with the Pope, but with the Cardinal, and the Cardinal said to him, um, you know, he asked, could you help us trying to create a new Jewish state? And the Cardinal explained to him, we can't help you. Your people have rejected the Savior, so we will not help you. And when the State of Israel was declared in 1948, the, one of the only holdouts, even with all the enemies that the Jews have, that the state of Israel have, and the Muslim world, and the greater world, um, most states, most entities accepted begrudgingly the existence of the state of Israel. It took till 1992 for the Vatican to finally recognize the existence of the state of Israel because doing so was effectively repudiating a couple thousand years of Christian theology that was based on this idea. You guys rejected the Lord and the Lord, the Lord destroyed your house and rejected you, but if the Jews are coming back and they're living in their, hand, in, in their land and they're keeping mitzvot and they're doing just fine, thanks very much, then uh, maybe after all the Lord hadn't rejected us. And so admitting that took a long time and it's not something they come to very easily. With all of the tragedy, and it's immense and overwhelming, and you can, you, we would imagine perhaps that people might lose it and be completely consumed with grief, but the Jews don't falter as a people, maybe individuals here and there, but collectively we actually rise to the occasion 
and it's not quite like after Bayes Rishon, where there was a collective tshuva that reversed the state of affairs and brought it back. We'll have to understand why that didn't happen with Bayes Shani, one of the big questions of history. But why do I know that Jews don't falter? Because somebody who is not an agent, not a defender of the Torah world, actually describes exactly this. Josephus himself writes as follows. He testifies, and again, he has little interest in defending Torah Jews or those keeping Torah. I'll quote him in Antiquities. He writes, even now, there is still not one Hebrew who does not act as if Moses were present and, Moses, and, and it does not act as if Moses was, not, was ready to punish him if he should do anything indecent, even after the destruction of the temple. So Josephus recognized that uh, the, the Jews were still on a, on a very high level. What happens next? So many Jews, as we said, were taken to captivity. There's persecution in far and distant lands. Bavel has weathered most of the tragedy um, but remember, Bavel is was had not long ago experienced its own its own miniature Holocaust with the destruction of Hanilai and Chachina, the, the, the brothers and the gang. So Bavel is 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 sort of on the uh, on the on the low end right now. Anyway, as a community, it's it's going to take a little while for, until Bavel reasserts itself as a prominent place. And there are some Jews who are left in Eretz Judea. They settle, of course, in Yavne. Yavim now becomes the center for a very brief period uh, in its vicinity too. We know that there are Jews who are in Betar. Betar south of Jerusalem. <coughs> there are Jews up in Usha in the Galilee. There are a few here and there in scattered villages. Caesarea had now officially becomes the capital of Eretz Judea in, for the Roman Empire. And it's a place that Jews, at least in, in the immediate aftermath of the Korban, will avoid. Wait, wait, what was Jerusalem? Jerusalem becomes a uh, tiny, impoverished Roman military post. Oh, so it's not it's not Ilya capital. Not yet. That's coming in a couple generations. It's still it's still Yerushalayim. The Gemara Megillah tells us symbiotic relationship between Caesarea, which represents the Roman world. You remember the Caesarea, the port on the, on the, on the coast um, that Herod built in honor of the Caesar. So um, Caesarea re represents and epitomizes everything that is Rome. And when Caesarea is up, Jerusalem is down. And conversely, when Jerusalem is up, Caesarea will find is down. And um, that in physical space, that represents very much the relationship between Esau and Yaakov. As Rivka was told when she was pregnant, carrying these two babies, um, they feed off of one another. About 70 years after the Khorban, the Gemara Numa tells us, we have the testimony, we alluded to this yesterday, Rebiosi goes to Rome. And in Rome, he is given entry. We'll tell this story when it comes up 70 years from now. He's given um, an entrance into the, some of the archives, some of the treasure storage rooms of the Caesar. And he comes out and he testifies later that he saw the parochas. He saw the same parochas that Titus, Titus had stabbed. It was hanging in the palace. And he said drops of blood were still visible. The blood that miraculously came out and that permitted Titus to have the feeling that, uh, you know, that he, he, he observed this. Um, he observed, he observed the, the murder, as it were, of the creator of the universe, uh, which we saw was inverted, and Titus actually had the, had the worst end, but this, this miracle was still, still on display. Um, we know that in Rome, till today, testimony of exactly what happened, unless we think that this is all just nice fairy tales, um, if there's a question about the destruction of the Chorba Beis Mikdash, Titus, as emperor, put up right there in the center of Rome the arch. We call it the Arch of Titus. Anybody see it? Have you been to Rome? Well, when there, do as the Romans. Uh, but uh, you'll see in that relief, very famously depicted, are the faceless Roman soldiers with the Roman insignia. Um, and they're unmistakably carrying out our artifacts, including very prominently that, that menorah. Uh, and that's, among other things, not only... Um, 
clear evidence that what happened happened. Um, someone has cited as evidence for um, that position in the Rishonim, the Balitosfos and the Ibn Ezra, that the Menorah is, has curved branches. We talked about this, right? Um, but there's an easy defense for the Rashi Rambam view that the branches were straight. We did, we, we did discuss this. Um, say it again? Yeah, on the tour, correct. Um, in the 18th century, we know the great Chidah who traveled around the world, visited, and he actually was a, was a bibliophile. He ate books for dinner, uh, at least he consumed them with his eyes. And um, everywhere he went, he visited libraries and he had one of these amazing memories and he got into the Vatican. And he was assured that they had all kinds of artifacts from back in the day. We know that around that, uh, sometime later in the 1830s, um, the base of Bechira was discovered there. That was the Meiri's classic. It was not really discovered. We knew that they stole it from us. Um, there is, and I did mention this on the tour too, but I'll say it now as well, that um, there, some say that way down at the bottom of the Bucento River, in the secret cave of Alaric the Goth, lies perhaps all the treasures <laughs> the Romans have made off with, and lets people get too excited. These are not Moshe's Menorah, they're not Moshe's um, play Kodesh from the base of Mikdash, they would be the Hasmonean versions. Because we've been through many different versions of the clay kodesh, the latest one was was, was from the time of the Rabbi I, I, I just remember all the things in the first temple from the Mishkan. The no, uh, quick survey review: the Mishkan partly those elements that Shlomo could use were used and incorporated into the base of Mikdash. Most of the elements could not be used, and so he buried them under the Temple Mount in the in the deep tunnels. No, no, the menorah was something that could be used in the temple. No, so all the main a lot of the kaling were used, some of them were not necessary, so they were buried. Um, and then we mentioned there's a machlokis tanaim that actually is also a machlokis amoraim in the Gemara in Yuma that talks about one opinion that says that um, many of the many of the clay kodesh were carried off by the Babylonians. That's no, one no, view. This is near the. This is at the destruction of the first temple. So that would be then the fate of all those clay kodesh from the first temple. And we said that for all we know, they may still be off in Babylon today. Uh, today, um, underground, under Baghdad, together with all the rest of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. Um, the second view is that Yoshiau Hamelech. We talked about this. Had buried, anticipating the Horban, had buried many of these clay kodesh under, including the Aram kodesh perhaps as well. It doesn't say that, but that's a theory. Uh, under Harabais, and there it sits with the fiery lion and all the other exciting Wait, what things. Was the first so again, everything. Uh, or a lot of things. There's a list. What's, what's in, the, in the Mishnah in, in uh, Yuma? It includes the. Um, it includes the Aron Kodesh. It does include the Aron Kodesh. No, the Shemin Mishcha. The, don't forget the Tcharin and the um, Achbarin, the rats and the golden rats and hemorrhoids. Can't forget those. Um, the uh, the flask of Mun in a jar, right? And and, and many other artifacts. Wait, no, that was in the first temple. First temple. No, so what was buried before the first temple? You said that some of the things. I said the so Mishka. Many, so, but you said a lot of things were carried over, but some of the stuff wasn't. Right. I think I covered it. I think that answers it. What, 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 what's left? I'm so confused. We want to know before everything. You're saying, you're saying what, what happened to the first temple of Hila? I said. Yeah, no, I know that. I'm okay. Saying, you said that some of the kales were in the Mishkan. Some of them were in the first temple. No, weren't some, in the first temple. Right. Everything that wasn't in the first temple, Shlomo Buried well, underground. What was it? What was it? Ah, I didn't identify what they were. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Oh, I'm sorry. So I have that, and I don't have it on the top of my oh, head. Okay. Most of what I'm saying right now is from memory. Um, crush of Prasas, Amudav, in other words, oh, certain, okay. most of the building materials. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Logical things. Okay. I mean, you could use a lot of intuition, and I have a list there. A lot of the, you know, the, the Mishkan itself was not necessary. You had a permanent structure. Right. So like that. Gotcha. Sorry, sorry for the miscommunication. 
Now, with, this, with, it, with the idea that maybe under the Placenta River are all of our goodies, so that was what I talked about on January 27, 1996, the religious affairs minister, Shimon Shitrit, uh, sent, uh, sent word to the Pope um, in the Vatican. He said, this is some 1926 years after the Chorba Mesa Mikdash, he asked Pope John Paul II to help him locate the menorah and the other clay kodesh. Um, and uh, I mentioned also that it's something that has ostensibly not been responded to in 18 years. And then you bring up the idea that, that the, why you, they? They, uh, they sent in a, a new letter and actually got a response from the new They got a response and the response indicated that? That there isn't anything, but even if there were something, they couldn't show. They couldn't help you. They couldn't help it's too complicated. Yeah. Right. Wait, why? And I have some swampland in Florida, if you believe that, too. Wait, the, uh, why can't they send you to visit that? Like, people go in to visit the Vatican. No, yeah, no. Not no, that. Not the archives, though. That's why they're secret. You can't go in. Yeah. No can you keep work. a secret? Yeah. Yeah, so can I. Wait, no one can go into those? <sighs> they, listen, they're in control. They have the prerogative. They want to show, they can show. If they don't want to show, they'll show you what they want to show you. There's certainly plenty of... Um, they're public displays that they're happy to share with you, but these are not because they're happy to have these to themselves. Honestly, do I think that those things are still there and they're not there? I think it's possible. I also think it's entirely possible that in you know that Rome was sacked many, many times by many people. The fall of the Roman Empire is well documented. They were attacked. When I say sacked, <laughs> that means that marauding masses came to town plundering Rome of all of its treasures. The Visigoths, the Vandals, the Arabs, the Normans, and many others. Um, and what, they, nobody's going to find any of these artifacts and make off with them? It's possible they're still there, we just don't know. What is the difference between Bice, Rishon, the destruction of the first temple, and the destruction of the second temple? There are many. When the first temple was destroyed, we still had prophets. We had Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel. They gave us comfort. They were our, as it were, our direct line to Kodesh Baruch Hu, telling us that we're going to get out of this one. And it's a temporary phase. They guided us what's our next step. They told us what to do. Um, now, without prophecy, at the beginning, what we didn't know at the time, that would be the most bitter and extended by far of all exiles. Um, the Jews might have been completely desolate were not for the guidance that they received from the Gedolim. So if after the loss of prophecy that we saw at the beginning of the Second Temple, the Chachamim, the new age of Chochmah, now came to set a whole new path in history, um, that was true then, and now the Chachamim are going to emerge as central in a way that they've never been to this degree, and all important, they are the future of Klal Yisrael. And much like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's almost prophetic, request in the scheme of things, having the vision to, to recognize, give me a small place where we can sit and learn Torah, half Torah will travel, we'll be able to manage and we have Torah, the Jews now increasingly recognize that the Gedolim are their guiding light. Wait, what's it called, the, like that God makes the cure before the plague? Rish Lakish talks about that, and yeah. This, like that too, like he had Yom set up. Nice, nice connection. For sure, for sure. Kadosh Baruch Hu doesn't, and he all kinds of uh, support texts for exactly that idea. He does not punish us without first providing the antidote for all the punishments that befall us. And Yavne is absolutely in place before, before. We said that with Galus Bavel too. Yeah. We, we mentioned that particularly with the, the, the um, Galus of the Harish and the Mazgir. They set up all the Torah institutions. So, so too you have Yavne to uh, see us through. People, people say Israel, like you have the Holocaust. But he had Israel set up. Like, he had Israel ready to be, like, all the people making Aliyah. So very right. possible. Very possible. Hard for us to know exactly how it works out. But sure, why not? Um, the Gemara Kisubos tells a sad story that actually Rav Chaim and others interpret very positively. <laughs> Uh, it's, and it's an odd story. If you don't know what you're reading, you can't understand the Agadita. Maybe you've learned this Agadita before. It's the end of Ksubos. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, comes to Yerushalayim riding a donkey. And it's after the Chorban. And it's desolate. And in the ruins, in the quiet, 
he finds a young woman sifting through dung of Arab donkeys. And she's trying to find in, within the dung little pellets of barley so she could eat. And Rabbi Yochanan approaches her and says, and he recognizes a Jewish young woman, and he says, whose daughter are you? Who knows the story? Whose daughter are you? And she doesn't answer him. So he repeats the question, and he doesn't let up. And finally, she wraps her hair, as a dignified Jewish woman would do. She stands before him, and she says, Rebbe Parnasini, please give me Parnasa. I'm starving. And after some discussion, he finally gets her to reveal who is she exactly, do you remember? Yeah, she's the, she's the daughter of the richest uh, person. The one she who, is the daughter of Naktimon yeah, Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion, who, uh, who, who prayed for the rain. Who prayed for the rain, the sun stopped for him. And uh, Naktimon Ben-Gurion's daughter, who, according to at least Rav Miller, was actually the brother of Josephus. Um, she herself used to be one of the, more, one, one of the most beautiful of, of all women. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai recalls he was present signing her ksuba, which was worth a fortune, but she got married. And now she stands there, a destitute widow with nothing to her name. <laughs> and Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai has the following response. I'm going to quote the Gemara. Ashrechem Yisrael, ki chelek Hashem atem, Happy are you, Jewish people. You are God's chosen portion. And you think, I'm sorry, am I reading right? This is such a, a, a tragic, poignant scene. And he says, happy are you, Jews? Picking barley pellets out of animal excrement, animals that belong to, 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 these, to these Arabs who were not, who they were pagan and not the highest class of people in the world in those days. Um, he says, when you don't do Hashem's will, Hashem delivers you to the animals of the lowliest of nations. Well, thank you very much. Uh, but the Maral says, yeah, they're actually really very positive, uplifting wor words. The Maral says, when Hashem punishes us, He doesn't just do a half-baked job. He sends us down to the bottom. Our fall is so extreme, the only way we can rationally, rationally, reasonably explain it is by Hashkocha Pratis. Only with divine providence does it make any sense that this kind of radical extreme fall. And, and, and this, if we can recognize it, and we have to have the vision and the, the, the sophistication to realize it, actually should be comforting to us. Because we have to say, this is so bizarre, it's so extreme, that the only conclusion is me'es Hashem ha'isazos. This must be from Hashem. I don't know if you ever had this experience. I'm going to try to make this argument when we get closer to modernity, but it's my perception increasingly of modern events as they unfold that they're kind of like that. It is so extreme. It is so in ludicrous what happens in the world and, 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 and against the Jewish people, against the state of Israel, that, you know, that, that the tragedies that can befall the Jews and then immediately followed by condemnations by the UN because of Israel's ongoing hostility. And you look around and you see that and you think, that's just so extreme. And Rosh Chaim Shmulevitz has this wonderful essay, Bringing the Maharal, and explaining, yes, that's a Kajbarachus Chesed. When he blasts us, it's not, a, it's not a little potch on the wrist. It's such an extreme uh, blast that we have no, I mean, anybody who's looking with eyes in his head has to recognize Yad Hashem. Uh, um, Rabbi Yaakov Hillel has an interesting uh, piece on this, on this, uh, on this on point. This yeah. yeah. And, and he, he was explaining that it was actually based on uh, Ben Gurion. And it was. Naktimon Ben Gurion. Yeah. On, what was it? Naktimon Ben Gurion. And he said that uh, it wasn't. It wasn't just the giving that he gave because he uh, he prayed for rain and the rain came. Yeah. But at the very end, he prayed that the sun would come back up to show that it was uh, still daytime. Nice. And he said it was that that sin. Oh, it was that because why did he pray? Only to save himself some money. He had money, uh -huh. but he did that. So because he prayed for the extra money, then later on in his family he would lose the money. Okay. Um, we don't have a mishkan. 
And now we don't have a base of Megdash. This is immediately effective after the Chorban, and it continues till today, 1926 years later. Uh, no, it's in 1944 years later, right? As we are today. With this, there used to be 613 potential mitzvahs. You realize that <laughs> no single Jew could keep all those mitzvahs. Many of them, for example, are pertinent to Kohanim or alternately Levim, a different or, or the Melech Israel. Um, but without any temple, at most the Jews have anybody know what is the number of mitzvahs we can keep? Three hundred sixty-nine. The same number of years in demonic. If this helps you, the same number of years that Shiloh was the capital of the Jewish people. Three six nine. Most of these mitzvahs are lavim, or negative precepts. And listen to this, this is great. This is a gorgeous piece from different gedolim. The Shla Kadosh, in his introduction to his commentary on the Torah Shpichtav, he learns from a pasuk, very famous pasuk in Shirish Shirim. Ani, yish, you might want to get this down. This is really quotable. Ani yeshena v'libi er. It's the fifth chapter. I am sleeping, but my heart is awake which is itself a pretty apt description of the Jews in Golis till today. I'm sleeping, we're in a slumber, we're in the state of Hester Pudding, where everything comes to us in a state of spiritual alienation, but my heart's awake. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ember burning in the midst. So the Shla brings down that if you add the word, if you add um, the gematria, of the second word, yeshena, you come up with the number 365. Add to it, and this is a legitimate way of working with the codes, add to that number the number of letters themselves, which are four, and you get 369. Uh, you get the number 369, which is the number of mitzvahs that we have. So the, the, in gemat remember the gematria is never just cute party tricks. You know, oh, that's so neat. Chazal were really not interested in entertaining us. That was the least of their interest. When you have a gematria, the way to understand it is there's something inherently true about this idea. I'm sleeping and my heart is awake. I'm sleeping because all I have, my whole link to reality is through the mitzvahs. If I'm sleeping, I have a minimal, uh, as it were, less than desirable number of mitzvahs. That's 369. It gets better. The missing mitzvahs, and they're going to do the math real quickly. We need Svi, right? Uh, the missing mitzvahs, you subtract 613, and you, you take off 369, you're left with 244. Uh, 244 in gematria, merit, rebellion. The difference between the number of mitzvahs that we have today and the potential number of mitzvahs that Klal Yisrael can keep is rebellion. It's all up to us. If we rebel, so we lose mitzvahs. Wait, but you can also do a year of miracles. You can do like redeem the sheep. You can. But those are included in the, those are included in the 369. Hold on. Now, practically. It, go, it, it gets more. 369 are, in theory, you might do, but you're very unlikely to do a, a bunch of them. What I mean is that, um, you know, if one, in order to be over on Balsa Acher, do you know what Balsa Acher is? Should learn the mitzvahs. Take Rabbi Rosen's class. Um, Balsa Acher means um, making a vow and then not making the deadline for whatever the vow was. You're supposed to do something by a certain time. So a person who neglects to do whatever he said he was going to do by a deadline <laughs> violates Balsa Acher. But it's one of those lavim that only come up if you make a neder in the first place. <laughs> Meaning it's not inherent that you're going to ever get to this lav if you don't if you never make a neder. So the lav would never come up in your life. So. And there are many, many mitzvahs that are like this that are only circumstantially relevant. Um, where really, in our lives, practically, the, the number of mitzvahs that they count today are, out of that 369, it's really only about 270. The 270 was in the concise book of this book, right? Oh, I don't know. I, haven't, I don't know that book. Oh, it's... Uh, Makes it's, sense. It's, oh, you know who wrote it? Um, I think it was... Um, it was the whole time, I think. Oh, fine. Is, okay. So 270 mitzvahs that we have today, they make up, there are 48 mitzvahs ase that you could potentially keep today, 222 negative, lavim. And the Chinuch tells us 270 is the same gematria as er. 
Ani Yeshena, I'm sleeping because I have I'm sleeping with with 369 mitzvahs. The leapy air, but my heart is awake because I can keep potentially 270 of them. Wait, so how many uh, positive? 44, 48. Excuse me, 48 positive, 222 negative. Chazal with Ruach Hakodesh and ingeniously emphasize the korban. They make the korban part of Jewish consciousness. Um, and by doing that, effectively, that makes the base of Mikdash, the temple itself, tangible for us today. We talk <laughs> about it, we dream about it, we learn about it, we should. Uh, we, one of the reasons I wanted to give that tour was to make it much more of a reality. You should picture yourself. I, I told you that since I've been studying this, I increasingly dream in the base of Mikdash. Oh, it's a good thing, I think, because a person should, thank you. Yeah, oh, the concise book of Mitzvah. Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, excellent. So, so you should have the basic mikdash in your mind, and part of that is what's been orchestrated by, um, by Chazal in, in making it front and center. And that way, if we care about it, we think about it, we daven for it, that way we can aspire to rebuilding it too, as we say speedily in our days, we continue to face Yerushalayim when we daven, we fast on all the relevant time, Neos, the fast days around Yerushalayim. When we visit Yerushalayim, this is something that I haven't given over yet this year, but you, you're aware that there's a halacha. It's not an optional kind of a thing. There's a, a halacha that a Jew tears um, when seeing destroyed cities in Yehuda, in Judea, which is something that some poskim say that we don't, but most accepted practice is not to do nowadays, but there is such a concept. But what is accepted, everybody says that one tears if you haven't seen the area of the mikdash um, in 30 days. That a person tears his garment and except the garment is the shirt. But we do a lot more than just these things. We build a house and we leave an unfinished square in the entrance. It's a halacha that's any knowledgeable Jew keeps it. Um, but I, I, I'm aware that in the states or in, in, in the diaspora communities in general, people tend to neglect this one. If you've seen people in, the, in, in, in overseas leaving an area uh, of their apartment near the entrance unpainted, is that something you've ever seen abroad? I, I, you have seen it, fantastic. Uh, I, in my experience, it's not so common, but you go uh, wherever you're gonna be for Shabbos, you're, let's say you're in a home, pay attention and see, there's a good chance that they have a Zeichel Mikdash on there, right there on the wall. It's, it is brought down, it's brought in the Shulchan Aruch as well. You leave a square unfinished. Daladamos by Daladamos. No. Not Daladamos. That's good. Uh, why am I picturing this? Uh, a square. No. Not Daladamos. That's too big. A square. I'll give you, I mean, I have it written up. The whole, the whole, the whole, the whole, uh, so good. Um, we, uh, Skip a course at a meal. Women are supposed to omit a piece of jewelry. They should never put on all their jewelry at any one time. Under, at the chuppah, at the very end, we crush a glass. Um, of course, that's what we're saying. Barosh Sim Chasenu, at the height of the greatest joy, the celebrations, so we never forget the Chorban Mesa Mikdash. Um, immediately after the destruction, many Jews took on themselves to avoid any meat or any wine as part of the ongoing mourning and desolation. We no longer have korbanos. So you don't have that built-in mechanism to approach Hashem. So with that, tefillah now takes on a new importance and centrality. And we remember the pasuk in Hosea, Unishalma Farim Svasena, we pay with the offerings, the cows, um, of our lips, with our, with our, with our tefillah itself. And then it's, it's as if we've actually brought the, uh, the, the korban when we, when we daven with the right kavana. Um, lacking a base mikdash, we now have a base knesses, base a knesses, which becomes increasingly central. It's the local makom ashkina, the place where the shkina dwells. Yomar Brachos says, mi shacharav base mikdash, at the time the base mikdash is destroyed, that a Kaddish Baruch Hu only has the four cubits of halacha to keep. So our way of building, um, build the Mishkan in my heart, how do I do that? 
I'm punctilious in keeping halacha, and the Shekhinah is with me. The Shekhinah dwells in such a place because it's pure and holy. And we have to make a little area in this physical and sometimes uh, barbaric world of holiness, and the Shekhinah can then be comfortable, as it were. <clears throat> and we said this, I said this a few minutes ago, but it's relevant to repeat. After the Chorban Ninalu Sharit Tfila, the gates of prayer have been locked, Marmrachos, but Sharit Dmaos, the gates of tears and the gates of tshuva, remain always open, together with the fact that Tfila B'Tzibor, one of the reasons why it's a really good thing to dab, come to Shul and daven with a, with a minion, is that's public davening and that's never ignored. Yirmiyahu taught us, Tzion he Doirish Einla. Sion, Yerushalayim, has nobody to seek it, to inquire upon it. Um, Sion requires darshan. You gotta learn about these things, and you gotta make them your own priority. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai makes takanos, decrees, zechel mikdash, so that, whereas before this was not the halacha, we have a lot of halachas that are very much trying to commemorate, perpetuate many of the practices that are relevant in Beis Mikdash. It used to be that we did not take the lulav outside of the Beis Mikdash every day of Sukkot, and now we do. All six days that are not Shabbos, obviously, um, instead of just one day, every Jew, wherever, wherever he is, takes the, uh, takes the lulav. Um, during the Yom HaHenef, which is the day that one waves the um, Korban Omer, the, the day, the second, the, the day of uh, you know, the beginning of Pesach. So Chadash, the new grains are usher, Um but now we only do, we only, we, we, we extend this. It used to be from earlier in the day that you could start eating the Chadash became Yasha, became old grains. Now we wait till the end of the day. But there is a residue. We still feel the base of Mikdash. Um, at the Pesach Seder, what do we do? We all know this. What's Zechel the Mikdash? Kehillel? We have Korech. We eat, we eat the Pesach. Uh, you know, we don't have the Korban Pesach anymore, but we have the, as we say, the Hillel sandwich. It's often, sometimes rendered, um, but that's an attempt to re, at least reimagine what it was like in the base of Mikdash. Every morning at the end of Shachris, we say, Shir Shalyom, Hayom, Yom Chamishi, Shavu Hayu Halavim, Omrim Beis Mikdash. It's supposed to be in our minds. I mean, unfortunately, people, as we are, human and flawed and all the rest of that, so we sometimes, it all becomes rote. And we say, what did I just say? Right, so it's not in our minds, but we're supposed to be paying attention. That's what Kavana is to, to the content of our tefillahs. Um, yeah. The uh, Kohanim, in their relative mishmaros for many generations, 24 groups refrained from drinking wine. Many of them uh, maintained a higher level of purity just in case the base of Mikdash will be rebuilt any day. They didn't know that the, Chorba, that the um, Gullus was going to go on for so long. So they were prepared for the possibility the base of Mikdash could re be rebuilt tomorrow, and they maintained Tahara. They still had ashes from the ninth Para Aduma. So with that, they could maintain a very, very high level, a high standard of Tahara, and that's going to last at least for a, a couple generations. And now the Jews find themselves in a totally <laughs> new social situation. Suddenly they looked around and they realized, where have all the Hellenizers gone? The Tzdukim are gone, never to be heard from again. And it's this massive blessing. And you remember, this, you remember the Gemara and Gitin that we quoted when the, sometimes you had to break the pot to get the snake wrapped around the pot of honey to, uh, to uncoil and go away. And that's what's happened. All these sects that have been vying for power for hundreds of years and ultimately leading to the Sinas Kinam that led to the destruction, finally, the only people who remain are the true Torah Jews, the people who defer to the Chachamim. Chazal emerged as the new uncontest. Un 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 nobody, nobody takes them on as the authority. Now you could argue, who would want such authority? The Jewish people is so persecuted, so down, downtrodden that there's not like a there's not a competition for the job. You know, who'd like to be the king of the uh, of the of the uh, low life of the of, of the of the persecuted of the world? But effectively, what that means is they are really the leaders of the Jews, and nobody challenges that. 
So it's a, it's, it's a new, it's, it's, it's a brave new world, and consider this, it's a really big insight. The next 400 years, until finally the completion of Shas, we, talk, we call the Talmud, there is never one instance, this is from Victor Miller, there's never one instance of conflict in either Hashkafa or in Halacha between Chazal and a non-sage. Make sure you got what I said, because it's very easy to misunderstand. It doesn't mean there's no conflict. There's, there's machlokis. But it's a elu ve'elu divre elokim chayim. It's these and these are the words of a living God. L'shem shemayim. Legitimately motivated argument between sage and sage. But no sage, no non-sage came along and said, here's a lifestyle like Hellenism. I'm calling it Judaism. Here's the care, here's the Karaite <laughs> system. Here's the reform, here's the reform Judaism, and this is Judaism. And they didn't challenge Chazal for authority. There's no schism. The people who are on the outs would say they're Amehaaretz, they're ignoramuses, they're the ones who the shul they don't go to is the orthodox one. But they recognize that Chazal were right. And now a new process begins called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an emergency measure and it's prohibited in the Torah. Because the oral tradition, as we've been discussing, is forbidden to write down. That's what it is, it's an oral tradition. You're not allowed to write that down. But at this point, the Mishnah begins very slowly, very gradually to be, the oral tradition is starting to be recorded as what's understood to be the only saving mechanism in order to restore Torah so that Torah will survive in these now newly decentralized, um, precarious times when the Jews find themselves. So here's the story of the Mishnah. The year is about 75 in the Common Era. It's around that time that the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai dies and the new Nasi is Rabbi Gamliel II. And we're about to meet several figures. We're going to reinforce several of the previous figures that we've started, we've sort of heard about, but several of them are going to emerge, and some of the great stories of history are about to unfold in front of us. So I'm going to introduce it today. We're obviously not going to get, uh, we're, we're not going to go uh, too much into it, but Sunday should be very interesting. In fact, I think I'm going to repeat, or at least my version of the story that Rabbi Tatz apparently told a few minutes ago. Uh, the the Tanur Shalachnai he mentioned, right? The the the, the famous uh, oven that, that has a has an unusual shape and there was a machlokas here. Everything has been Hercules and the rest of Chazal. Somebody just told me that he told that story, but maybe not. Not important. In any case, Rabbi Gamliel II is now emerges as the new Nasi. Remember who he is? I'll retrace it. Hillel. Go back to Hillel, the original Nasi. Right, Hillel's son was, was Rabbi Shimon, but Shimon, but we don't know much about him. His son was Rabbi Gamliel Hazokin, grandson of Hillel, who was his servant Tavi, who survived through all this. And Tavi's going to actually be passed down to the second Rabbi Gamliel. His son was Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who, among other things, was one of the Asara Harugi Malchus, one of the ten martyrs that we lived through. His, uh, we we just talked about his death yesterday, and now the great great grandson of Hillel is the new Nasi. And he's a gadol. He's unmistakably a great scholar and a great individual who is uh, very, very central. Um, it's around this time, we'll, I'm going to reintroduce the figure that we talked about a while ago. Remember how Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai had five primary students? One of them was Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, who could be put on the scale and, in terms of, and, and he could outweigh everybody else in reasoning, in Sfaras, in Pilpul. Uh, he was uh, an immense scholar and a tremendous figure. And it's around the time after the Chorban that he goes down and his wife is in a place called Diomasis for the healing waters. And he goes to her to visit her. And he expects his students are going to follow him, but they don't. And so he goes and he's alone. And it's not clear how long he's there, but something happens. By moving away from Tyra, suddenly this immense scholar loses it. And he reads the Pusik. He says, instead of Hachodesh Hazeh, 
Lachem, which is arguably the first formal mitzvah given to Klal Yisrael as a nation, this month is for you. Hachodesh Hazel Lachem, he gets the letters all mixed up. It's like something, something's been playing with his mind. His, his, his disconnectedness from the central, from being with all of the great sages has played with his mind. And instead of Hachodesh Hazel Lachem, he says, Hacheresh Haya Libam. He changes some of the key letters. Easily misread, easy to confuse Dalit with Reish and all the rest. But it means de uh, uh, death became their hearts, which is, of course, emblematic of what just happened to him. He became dense. As it were, he was deaf. A deaf person in, in Chazal's understanding was somebody who was, who was not fully there, didn't have das, didn't have full mental faculties. And um, some say that Rabbi Lazar ben Arach may have been the same as we have a different name, Rabbi Naharai, who teaches us in Pirkei Avos, you know that sometimes the sages have different names, so maybe he was Rabbi Naharai in the fourth Pirkei of Avos, Hevegola the Makom Taira. Wherever you go, exile yourself to a place of Taira. Because um, there's an idea, maybe you've heard it before, that wherever you are, surround yourself with Talmud Chachamim. You heard that such a concept? Okay, you said that. Yeah, yeah. That was nice. Did he randomly call it when that was worked out in advance? No, yeah. wait, he said that's, that's he, he said he even said premise there with IOS and seven speeches, and he really does, because also the the uh, does? Yeah, oh, I'm not familiar. At the what's the the Rabbi Rabbi's what was that called? Oh, and I got the Oda, he also quoted you on that. Okay. Yeah, he likes that. It's true. It will define you. Whoever you are, and in Chagiga, we learned about him, just how immense of a, of a not just a Talmud, I mean, he was a Sadiq. Listen to, listen to how he's described in the Gemara in Chagiga. Avram Avinu himself is told, Ashrecha Avraham. Happy are you, Avram Avinu. That such a figure as Rabbi Lazar ben Arach should come out of your own loins, should be a descendant of yours. And for all of his prominence and all of his greatness, he's virtually absent in all the pages of Shas. So we read about him in Pirkei Avos. We have a little bit this story about him, but not one halacha is mentioned in his name. That's wild. That's a very strong message about the new role, the new prominence of the Chachamim and the critical definitional importance of being part of the Hevra. Part of, part of a group and not being disconnected, not being too much onto yourself. Um, and that's, that's the, this is the new world order. You have to be connected, you have to be attached to Chazal, ask Shailas. This is the post-Korban generation. It's dedicated to Torah. They're concerned the Torah would be forgotten. <laughs> and they start using the term Rebbe officially to promote Kavad Torah. So, so rabbis are referred to as such. Rabban Gamliel, Rabban, because he's a Nasi, Rabban Gamliel II is particularly zealous in establishing the authority in the Nasius. And um, there's a famous story that we're going to be telling on Sunday that underlines just how far he would go to elevate the Nasius. It was not out of personal uh, ego or, or any, any sense of trying to get position, but he understood that if Torah was going to survive, the people had to respect, there had to be a hierarchy, and the people had to respect that hierarchy of Torah. Um, last point for today. On the one hand, Pasuk in Amos tells us the people were Yishotesu Levakeshis Dvar Hashem they're going to be clamoring thirstily to seek the word of Hashem and they won't find it. And apparently that describes such a situation after the Chorban. They're going to be desperate to learn Torah. They won't, won't be able to find it. But the, the Gemara asks the question, how is that possible if earlier the Torah itself promises us um, it tells us that the Torah will not be and cannot be forgotten among the seed of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. How could we be seeking it? How could we ever lose it if it was destined never to be forgotten? So Rabbi Shemim Gamaliel sets forth a klal, a major principle. 
He says, what happens now, they never lost Torah, they never lost their, their sincerity, their earnestness in wanting to find it, but they now were in a situation where they didn't have what's called halacha brura or mishnah brura. That's where the terms come from. Uh, look in the Gemara, Gemara and Shabbos. They lacked halacha brura and mishnah brura in one place without machlokis. So the new job of the Chachamim in Yavne is to set about putting order and authority on the different machlokis so the Jews knew how to live, lead their daily lives. And Rabbi Gamliel and his peers formulated now writing a code so that they would know and there'd be no question, there'd be no ambiguity around what the correct halacha is. This is the earliest phase of what we call the Mishnah, which is a process. People think that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi wrote the Mishnah. No, it's a long, many generation process that begun all the way back in Yavna in response to the Horban Beis Mikdash, as again, it was an emergency measure, a Horas Sha'ah, that was designated in order to help Torah survive. That's the function of the Mishnah. And they sat, and I'll set the scene so you can picture it, and we'll continue our story on Sunday. They sat in what's called the Beis Havad in Kerem B'Yavne. It was like a vineyard, like a Kerem in the city of Yavne. In fact, the yeshiva is named for this exact phrase today. In a half circle, everybody knew their place. Rabbi Gamliel was front and center. Rabbi Sadok, remember who had fasted for 40 years, he was on the right. Um, Skanim, the other elders were on the left. Who are the Skanim? You have Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah is the Avbeistin. You have Rabbi Yezer ben Herkinus. You have Rabbi Akiva, Nachum Ish Gamzu, Abishal, Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. From, uh, from our Gemara, remember, remember Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, right? He was on, was on Rav's side in the uh, Mikveh, Sugiyah, and Makos, and many, many other places. You had Chutzpi Samaturgaman, Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, and thousands of others all sitting in the Kerem B'Yavna representing the new wave, the new generation that's going to sustain Tyra for the future until our day. We'll pick up from here on Sunday.